cat starts getting hard to handle, don't even hesitate. Just pull it out. Because then is not the time to beat the shit out of that cat and make it listen. You cannot reprimand a cat while the public's around. That happens behind the scenes. They don't want to walk. Pop him in the ass and make him walk. Okay? I know a lot of people have been talking about Tiger King as this pandemic unfortunately started and, and um, you know, thought it would be kind of a reprieve to it, something a little different than our, our daily panic about COVID-19. But unfortunately, it's really a symbol of the wider con- problems that we have that are causing these pandemics. Welcome to our podcast about biotechnology breakthroughs, the DNA of all living things, and the DNA of scientists, companies, and patients who make miracles happen. I'm Jim Greenwood, and you're listening to I Am Bio. A zoonotic virus is one that passes between animals and people. SARS, MERS, avian flu, swine flu... West Nile virus, monkeypox, HIV, and the SARS-CoV-2. These are all viruses that started in animals before they evolved, made the jump to human hosts, and started killing us. Evolutionary virologists who've studied this interspecies migration warn us that we're seeing a disturbing uptick in deadly diseases of zoonotic origin. They have the data to support the conclusion that this alarming trend is a byproduct of not only an exploding human population, but also the way we humans are living. The way we're disrespecting nature rather than understanding the profound interconnection between human, animal, and environmental health. Modernity is plowing new frontiers, disrupting natural habitats, and bringing us ever closer to exotic wildlife rich in viruses that our immune systems have not evolved to fight. The price tag for COVID-2 is already trillions of dollars and hundreds of thousands of deaths. And these numbers, tragically, are only growing. How do we arrest this trend and protect ourselves, our children, and our grandchildren? The answer is not to just isolate and hunker down. It's not to block off our borders in an era of global travel. This is a problem for the entire human race. Preventing a new wave of infectious diseases and deadly pandemics will require that mankind look inward, but then act outward. Reversing this existential threat will require better environmental stewardship, compassion for living creatures, and better global cooperation to monitor infectious disease outbreaks so we can mitigate future threats. Because, as today's guest explains, bats don't have passports. And Tiger King is more than just a pandemic distraction. It's a cautionary tale. My guest today is Catherine Machalava. She is a policy advisor at EcoHealth Alliance, which is an international nonprofit dedicated to a one health approach to protecting the health of people, animals, and the environment from emerging infectious diseases. 
She works closely with the United Nations Convention on Biological Diversity, the World Health Organization, and the World Bank. Catherine is also the program officer for the Species Survival Commission's Wildlife Health Specialist Group of the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. And she holds a degree in biology from Wake Forest University, a master's in public health from Dartmouth, and a PhD in environmental and planetary health sciences at City University of New York. Catherine, welcome to I Am Bio. Thanks so much for having me, Jim. Well, how did you get into this field? I worked at a public health department one summer in Vermont, and this was when I was the the ripe age of 19, and it was right around the time of West Nile virus. So this was my, the, the job that I was tasked with that summer was collecting dead birds that were susceptible to West Nile virus and a really good way to detect this disease when we're seeing it circulating in the environment. This disease is, is a really nasty one. So about 7% of patients go on to die. The route of death is really terrible. It's encephalitis, swelling of the brain. So you really don't want to be exposed. But fortunately, we have this wonderful tool of being able to detect it in birds and horses and other animals. And um, so that was my job that summer, tasked with collecting these dead birds, you know, getting calls from the public and my neighbors and schools. I hung up flyers all around my town and um, the surrounding community to call if you saw these dead birds. So it really was an impressionable experience to me about our connection with the environment. Wow. Am I correct that crows were particularly vulnerable to West Nile? Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of people don't really recognize the value of crows in our ecosystem, but they're in that that detection value for public health and our connection and the ability to incorporate this information into our public health system. It's really invaluable. Well, and they are also among the smartest birds on the planet. Oh, yeah. You know they, they, they make tools. They use tools. They're incredible. I'm personally really fascinated by the natural world and our biodiversity. And then when you look closer at those links to our health, too, it just becomes all the more interesting and important. Speaking of bats, we know, I think we know that the coronavirus inhabited bats in China. It infected one human who infected another human and so on. And now These people have infected millions of others and hundreds of thousands of people are dead from COVID. And recently we discovered that the virus was transmitted to tigers and lions in the Bronx Zoo. What we're seeing with COVID-19, of course, it's really heartbreaking. And we're seeing that it's humans, but then also other species like the tigers and the lions and many others that we're really concerned about in terms of endangered species. There's a few places in the system where we could have really targeted to to prevent and then really respond quickly. So I'll start all the way upstream in terms of that first emergence event, that first spillover of a pathogen from one species to another. We know there are about 1.6 million viruses in mammals on Earth. So, you know, having a sense of what's out there is really important. And once we know that better, we'll be able to be aware of the potential risks going forward in terms of zoonotic diseases that are likely to occur. These are animal-borne diseases. And once they get into the population, they become potentially, you know, spreadable and human pandemics like we've seen with HIV AIDS. So that was of zoonotic origin. It was transmitted via an animal, but now it's a human pathogen. It's, It's evolved quite significantly. 
Um, so that's one place about, you know, getting ahead of those disease threats, preventing them at the source. That's a risk reduction uh, opportunity. But then when it does, when you do see an outbreak occur, uh, you really need to be aware of it quickly and be able to contain it rapidly. And to do that, we need that information flowing between uh, communities to healthcare systems and public health systems, and then the appropriate response. In terms of the spill over to other species from humans that we're seeing now, this is what's hap happened, unfortunately, at the Bronx Zoo. The good news is those animals appear to have recovered well, so that's that's really positive. But you know, the the potential for these events to then have impacts on other species, it means that we also need to be aware of how we are interacting with other animals. So if people are sick, you know, what measures do we take to reduce the risk of that spillover then to other species? Well, it's it's kind of easy for those of us who lived in de live in developed societies to rail against the people in Asia and Africa who eat bush meat and who sell all manner of wildlife and these so-called wet markets. You know, it's easy for us as we're pushing our grocery carts through aisles of perfectly arranged, safely contained and well-inspected food products. But it's kind of hard to tell people who survive on what they uh, can just catch and kill to cut it out. So it, how can we overcome this source of zoonotic disease? Jim, I'm really glad you asked because it's something that concerns me a lot. You know, the context is so different in each country and community, and there's a lot of, um, you know, pushing against the wildlife trade, and I understand it, you know, but at the same time, we need to really think about how risk can be quite different in each setting. So uh, if we think about something like a, a wildlife market in another country, you know, these have been in the news a lot recently in terms of these, these so-called wet markets. So let me just paint a picture here of what this could look like in the different scenarios. So you could have one where it's, you know, fruit, fresh fruit, fresh mango, really delicious, you know, people dependent on these markets for their livelihoods and, um, you know, many positive benefits of that. But at the same time, you might have animal, live animals from, you know, multiple species from multiple forests that are all coming into this one market. You have a lot of people potentially going through the market. Say you're slaughtering animals in the market, then, you know, uh, you, you, you're you aerosolizing potentially blood and other fluids. And then that's an opportunity for transmission of viruses and, and other pathogens. So again, you know, some markets, for example, might have these measures built in that reduce risk. Maybe you um, only have certain species there. Maybe you have really good hygiene practices or, you know, maybe your slaughter is offsite. But it, it's this context about how it looks a little different in each country. And I don't want to point a finger at certain countries or settings. You know, some communities are really dependent on livelihoods and wildlife and ecosystems in different ways. We just need to really look at what are the high risk practices? How can we work with those communities to target them and also promote a, an ecosystem that is sustainable for our own health, too? I mentioned the modern grocery store in the United States, but even with all of the abundance of you know prime food we have here, the U.S. is still one of the major importers of animals from all over the, the world, right? 
Yeah, yeah. And let me put it into context a little here, because um, I know a lot of people have been talking about Tiger King, and there's a lot of excitement around it. And people were really looking to that as this pandemic, unfortunately, started and, and you know, thought it would be kind of a reprieve to it, something a little different than our, our daily panic about COVID-19. But unfortunately, it's it's really a symbol of the, the wider con- problems that we have that are causing these pandemics. So um, the the fact that we have tigers in captivity in the U.S., you know, that population is bigger than all the wild tigers in the world. You know, our, our trade demand is so high for wildlife products and live wildlife. And, um, you know, there's legal trade, there's illegal trade. So I think that consumer demand for these products, and there's many different reasons that people utilize wildlife and Sometimes it's for food, sometimes it's for pets, but there's a lot of loopholes and a lot of things coming into the U.S. that, you know, we don't necessarily want coming in and it's not necessarily good for our health. You know, I think we're very lucky in the U.S. with our access to good quality, safe food that's affordable, you know, overall. And it's a matter of recognizing our role in the trade and consumer demand and consumer awareness, making responsible choices if we're buying pets or, you know, uh, how we respect wildlife and that balance between humans and the environment. What is One Health? Yeah, well, it's a a term really near to my heart. And I think it's really elegant because it's this concept that reminds us about the links between the health, our, our own health, the health of humans and animals and the environment. That's really important because we we typically think about these as really separate entities. So uh, we know that what we do affects our planet, the ecosystems, and other species. We know that we're affected by exposures for, from our environment. Um, and a lot of these linkages are very positive. So we, we know that bats, for example, pollinate crops and flowers. We know that they eat pests, and, and that's really valuable, that free what we call ecosystem service. Uh, but then, unfortunately, we, we're seeing that there are negative consequences from uh, these interactions as we change our world, change how we uh, interact with other species. And that's really where we come into the, the example right now of COVID-19 and this pathogen jumping from one species to another. And unfortunately, the very high toll on human lives and economies. Well, there's a basic tenet of environmentalism that Everything on Earth is ultimately interconnected with everything else. Uh, We all know the phrase, uh, no man is an island. Um, I looked it up. John Donne wrote that in 1623. And not only is no man or woman an island, but within the concept of one health, no species is an island, right? Yeah, well, he was a very wise man, you know, and the world has changed quite a lot since 1623. But this is, I think, actually all the more relevant now. We're a very, you know, globally connected society. Um, I see these these pandemic and epidemic threats as really a common enemy. We really have to work together to understand what's out there, take the right measures to prevent these diseases. And, you know, the no species as an island point is, is really critical because we often say, you know, bats don't have passports. Bats are migratory species. You know, birds migrate thousands of miles. These are amazing things in the, you know, biodiversity sense and in all the ecosystem services that they provide along the way. We want those animals to be, you know, doing their natural practices and natural migrations. Each country, each community is a little different. 
But the overall changes on Earth are really substantial. And to tackle these issues, we have to work together. It's the only way when the next pandemic threat is, you know, potentially one plane ride away. Um, so it's really in our advantage to do that. And I understand, you know, the the tendency or the the attractiveness of saying, okay, let's contain and let's just work within our own country or, you know, isolate. But for these global problems, and especially for our global preparedness stance, we really need to work together. As the coronavirus has shown us, every nation is connected. And now more than 200 countries and territories have been infected with the virus. Some countries have seen a marked movement toward a nation-first isolationism and away from international cooperation. That would seem to fly right in the face of all of the precepts of One Health, right? It does. Yeah. And we've seen this before. Say, let's take SARS, severe acute respiratory syndrome. And that was back in 2003. Looking back at, at that experience, I think it was a warning. And we've really boosted a lot of our international preparedness and, you know, by working together. Um, but we're still really susceptible. And, and that's something that I think needs this coordinated action. You know, when you have something like that, SARS that did spread to 29 countries, you know, very quickly, uh, COVID-19 now really ubiquitous, unfortunately. I think it's the only way that we can really be ready to ideally prevent the next emerging pandemic threat and, and pandemic, but certainly to be ready as well if, you know, for that future threat. So if we know there are 1.6 million different viruses in mammals, and that's just one class of animals, birds and others, what do we know? I mean, is there some sort of a process by which somebody like you is out there going through capturing these viruses and looking at them and trying to figure out which ones are potentially uh, dangerous to humans or, or not? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's something that is really an opportunity for us to think about, you know, how can we do this in a systematic way? Um, I like to think about it as knowing your enemy, you know, that the animals aren't our enemies. It's it's really the viruses and those opportunities for risk reduction. Um, and if we don't know what's out there, we're sort of left, you know, unaware and unprepared. We, we can't really fight what we don't know is out there. Um, so that concerns me a lot. We've had um, some projects where we've looked at viral diversity to see, you know, how many viruses are out there. That's how we got that estimate of 1.6 million viruses. And there are some initiatives such as the Global Virome Project, which are really trying to look at how to do this in a cost-effective way. There is some good news in terms of, you know, where do you target? We know there are hot spots of disease emergence that we can make sure to focus our efforts and then certain species that are higher risk in terms of our likelihood to be exposed in ways that would facilitate disease spillover, but also just the viral richness, as we say, in these species. So you have to look at things like bats, non-human primates, rodents. Those are really the ones that we're especially concerned about. And then other animals too, but I think you have to start somewhere and build up your capacity and then, um, you know, go from there in terms of preparedness. But I really see it as a key opportunity. Scientifically, it's incredibly interesting, but I think practically as well, it's another tool in the toolbox for public health. So there's a thing called a pangolin. At some point, I read somewhere that the pangolin was a suspect. It might have been implicated in this transfer of the virus from the bats to humans. Is that uh, still um, a theory? And, and by the way, what the heck is a pangolin? 
Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, when I first heard of, of pangolins, you know, I said, you know, do you mean penguin? But no, it's very <laughs> different. Uh, the pangolin is a, a beautiful animal. If you haven't seen it, please look it up. Um, it basically looks like a scaly anteater. It's covered in these scales, which are made of keratin, basically like our fingertips, uh, fingernails. And uh, it, it kind of looks like it's wearing armor. So it's a fascinating animal. We call it the most trafficked animal that you've never heard of. It's highly in demand and uh, really traded uh, from continent to continent, and that's really driving it towards extinction. So that's incredibly concerning. It doesn't. It doesn't sound very cuddly. Why do are people trafficking it for pets or for food or what? It's a mix of things. So it's mainly for food and then for traditional medicine. It it doesn't do well as a pet. It doesn't survive in captivity, basically because of its food reliance. It has to have access to fresh insects and um, really, it, you know, hasn't survived in captivity. So it's not a viable commercial product that we can breed in captivity or have as pets, um, which is why it's really important that we keep it in the wild or otherwise, you know, we, we really risk it, its extinction. Are, are they mainly in China? There is the African pangolin and the Asian pangolin, and you have eight species total, but a lot of the demand is is in parts of um, Southeast Asia and, and China. Mm. So, you know, something really to look at from a sustainability perspective. And in terms of the disease risk, because it is so heavily traded and really trafficked, I mean, it's, it's um, something that's internationally protected and um, the sustainability risk is really well recognized. So in terms of health risk, because you have it traded throughout the world and because it's coming into contact potentially with other animals in the value chain, that's really where a lot of the concern was about the role of the pangolin and then there were initial findings based on the viral sequence for the virus that causes COVID-19, the SARS coronavirus 2. And based on genetic similarity, there was a, a virus in pangolins with about 80, 85% genetic similarity. That's the equivalent of, of us, you know, in cows, say. So not actually that similar. Um, and then subsequently, we found another virus strain that had been documented before that was uh, 96% similar. So the pangolin is no longer a suspect, but we have to keep in mind that, you know, from a sustainability standpoint, it's something that we really need to be looking at and curbing the demand for. All right. Well, so what other species can serve as sort of these sort of early warning systems for infectious disease outbreaks? We've seen that also for the, the tracking of Ebola virus when it's circulating in great ape species, such as gorilla and chimpanzee. Um, and a really good example of this was in um, Central Africa, Gabon, uh, and the DRC, the Democrat Democratic Republic of Congo, where you would actually get these uh, massive die-offs of uh, gorilla, chimpanzee species, really, you know, noticeable in terms of impacting their populations. And a hunter might stumble upon it and say, you know, wow, there's this carcass in the woods and, you know, kind of opportunistically collect it, but then also be handling it and exposed to it, butchering it. That's where we've seen some Ebola virus uh, spillover events occur. But having that information and having those eyes on the ground with those hunters, those communities aware, uh, you can really start to to 
boost up your system in terms of detection and reporting and risk reduction. So I think there's a lot of synergies in terms of, you know, risk reduction, working with communities, um, having the buy-in, the culturally sensitive approaches. And that's just one example. You know, there, there's many more out there about species that can really help us to under, understand our risk and get ahead of it. And it must be challenging because if you think about what we're going through right now with COVID-19 in this country, and we still have a whole lot of people who, because they can't see a virus, uh, don't really respect the danger that it poses. And that must be doubly hard in, in, in populations where they have less, uh, they're less educated, they have less access to scientific information on, on television and so forth. It must be difficult to convince them that these things that they can't possibly see are uh, a threat to their own lives. It is, yeah. And I think that's where, you know, working with local communities, having local stakeholders is so important. And that's, you know, why you need to have your sociologists, anthropologists, economists working on these issues, but make sure that you're really working at a local setting, understanding the challenges, whether they're socioeconomic, whether it's, you know, vulnerabilities that are very different than what we face in our day-to-day lives here in the U.S. I'm optimistic that, you know, we can do that in, in great ways and there can be so many gains in terms of how we do that and, you know, from a, a development perspective, the importance of doing that and, you know, making sure that that we have an equitable world. But I think, you know, it, it really requires that local action. And even within countries, you have to deal with the silos. So, you know, the, the reality is that countries have interconnections between things like the Department of Health and Department of Agriculture and Transportation and Commerce and so forth. And that's a problem of its own, right? Because they really have to talk to each other and, and figure out how to unify their planning as it regards to these zoonotic diseases. Absolutely. And I think this is where One Health approach is so obvious to to us, you know, in terms of um, the need for coordination in plans, the need for coordination in implementation, for where resources are going, for where certain areas are not resourced. From a regulatory standpoint and a budgetary standpoint, it's so important that you make sure that you have those synergies, you make sure there are not decisions made in one department that has a negative trade-off for another, which may be, you know, very costly. Um, We need that unified planning to make sure we're really covering all our bases. So what type of research do we need to get a better understanding of how future infectious diseases threaten us? And um, not just the ones we struggle with right now, but in the future. Why why is that, that important? What do we need to do? I think the wildlife health piece is is something that I am really concerned about. This is a key gap where you see that we just, you know, the fragmented authorities kind of leave this piece out. So we have biodiversity monitoring. We know what species are out there. But in terms of their health and the diseases that they carry, that's really something that we don't have a good handle on. So those, you know, field-based opportunities for improved surveillance to to test and um, to do it in a setting that doesn't have good infrastructure, doesn't have a laboratory, you don't have cold chain, 
uh, I think that innovation can just move us ahead so far in terms of knowing what's out there and the the viral diversity that that we're you know we really need to be aware of to identify how to invest in really smart ways cost effective ways the social science research that you need to really understand what practices are occurring that allow risk to manifest and then uh, what we can do about it so what solutions are viable what needs to be done at say community level or at national level or global level. And I think that will help us to be much more prepared to have a much more comprehensive preparedness stance. What are the international organizations that are promoting One Health? Well, several organizations are trying to integrate One Health strategies into their work, but I think the challenge is that there isn't really a good mechanism to work across, say, United Nations institutions or to really fund projects that involve multiple areas of expertise. So this One Health research that we need, it's really, you know, has been almost lacking in practice to date, which is unfortunate. But the World Bank really shines for their work in One Health, and we worked with them recently to develop a One Health operational framework. And this guidance provides ideas about the things that you really need to think about when you're designing projects, you know, designing investments and ways to actually optimize resources to address animal and human disease risks. Um, I think that there's a lot more work to be done to make this routine, but there are also a lot of efficiencies And at the World Bank, they have so much in-house expertise. You know, they literally have health, agriculture, environment, disaster risk reduction, and other sectors under the same roof. They also have a private sector arm, the International Finance Corporation. So I think they they see the benefit of this approach in terms of um, business continuity and really building up strong governmental systems and also protecting the world from future disease threats. I was a, a state legislator for 12 years and Congress for 12 years. And it's always hard to get governments to spend, you know, pay for that ounce of prevention that saves the pound of cure. But the cost of these zoonotic diseases is is pretty big, not only in lives, but in dollars, right? It is, yeah. So if we look at zoonotic diseases, these animal-borne diseases, we see that our best estimate is around 2.2 million deaths per year. But then the economic costs are just astronomical, as we've seen from COVID-19, which is already in, uh, you know, the the estimate of trillions of dollars. It's likely to be more, unfortunately, as we see this continuation of disruptive economic activities. Congress has already passed multiple spending packages and sending checks out to individual people to to reduce the impact of this this disease on our families on our you know ability to pay rent and it, I think it's really concerning in terms of um, the overall cost to society and you know not just for this disease but what happens with the next one are we going to be able to be resilient and weather that storm and that's where it really comes down to the cost of an action so we're really on the frontiers of humanity continuing to expand continuing to have these risk practices that drive these spillover events and you know that return on investment of Doing something that allows us to have a better stance against these disease threats is just, I, I think there's no way to to really argue against it. You know, the, the, the 
value of prevention is invisible. And I understand that's really challenging when you're trying to make that argument. But I think the cost now of not taking action is so visible in our daily lives. And we really need to act to prevent that in the future. All the people like yourselves and your colleagues and these organizations that are working for this, we we didn't succeed in preventing this pandemic. But the work has really just begun, hasn't it? It has just begun. You know, this, this pandemic is heartbreaking. And we know there's a better way to do things. We know there's a way to prevent these diseases and, you know, detect them early and prevent families losing members and uh, of their family, you know, loved ones. And that's what really keeps me up at night is that we have a better way. It's not always the the approach of um, medical countermeasures, but it's also the approach of upstream prevention and getting ahead of disease threats and knowing what's out there and really taking a concerted action to say, what's needed to prevent this in the future and not just respond to it effectively, which we certainly need to do, but also just be able to look at this upstream and just avoid it altogether outright. We may have failed this time, um, but the lesson here is that we can't delay anymore in confronting this problem and coming up with the solutions you've recommended. There's a great quote from Martin Luther King that I jotted down here. It says, We are now faced with the fact that tomorrow is today. We are confronted with the fierce urgency of now. In this unfolding conundrum of life and history, there is such a thing as being too late. This is no time for apathy or complacency. This is a time for vigorous and positive action. So Catherine, thank you for your vigorous and positive action and the good cheer you bring to this whole field. Wish you well. I'm sure that uh, we're all safer knowing that that you and your colleagues and your organizations are hard at work on this very complicated but fascinating subject. Thanks, Jim. And we're all in this together. We really appreciate the efforts of you and your members. So thanks again. All right. Stay safe. That's all for today. Don't forget to subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Or even better, you learned something useful today. Please share a link to the I Am Bio pod with your family and friends. To learn more about the work of heroes in lab coats, please visit iambio.org.